0: Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. Member FDIC. Copyright 2024 J.P. Morgan Chase and Co.
1: The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers
0: From Pushkin Industries, this is Deep Background, the show where we explore the stories behind the stories in the news. I'm Noah Feldman. What has happened to the American right? That's our topic today. How did a party that touted itself as the party of ideas turn into the party of Donald Trump? And what are conservative intellectuals thinking about it? To discuss that on this week's show, we're joined by Peter Wehner. Peter is my favorite conservative intellectual of the moment. He's a senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and he's a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times and a contributing editor to the Atlantic Magazine. He worked for the Reagan administration, the George H.W. Bush administration, and I first met him when he was working for George W. Bush, first as a speechwriter and then as the head of the Office of Strategic Initiatives. Uh, Boy, we haven't seen each other in a long, long time. I literally think I last saw you in the basement conference room in the West Wing during the Bush administration.
1: Right, back in the good old days.
0: (laughs) Depending on how you think of it.
1: Yeah, well, compared to Trump, I'd I'd say.
0: Pete, I want to start by registering a kind of frustration. Often when people ask me who are the leading evangelical Republican intellectuals in the United States, I start by saying, Pete Weiner, you got to read Pete Weiner, But in the last six months alone, you've written pieces talking about how the terminology of evangelical Christianity is no longer the right fit for you. And even that membership in the Republican Party may not be exactly the place where you belong. So you're you're robbing me of my my leading intellectual and within those categories, you'll still be my leading intellectual, but in other, some other categories. So would you talk a little bit about your own transitions and in both of these spaces with respect to terminology, I have the feeling more than content.
1: Sure, no, happy to do it. Because the first thing I'd say is um, I'm still a conservative, though I don't consider myself a Republican, which we'll get into. And I still consider myself a Christian, though I've detached myself from the um, term uh, evangelical. Um, let's take the last one. First, I mean, the uh, evangelical Christian movement is the one that I've been most a part of for um, f- for most of my adult life. Um, I didn't grow up a Christian, but at the end of high school, began a pilgrimage that that brought me to the Christian faith. It was evangelical churches that, for the most part, I I have been a part of. And identified more or less theologically uh, with. The reason that um, I no longer consider myself evangelical is um, primarily because of what's um, happened in the political arena. I think that the term evangelical these days is identified uh, by most people, understandably so, as a political term, not really as a theological term. Most white evangelicals overwhelmingly support uh, Donald Trump. But not only that; uh, many of them, not all, because it's a large movement. It's about fifteen percent of the population, and there are a lot of people on that on that spectrum. But a lot of white evangelicals are not only supportive of Donald Trump, but enthusiastic, and they are essentially become uh, they've become his sword and his shield. Um, the white evangelical leadership, whether you're talking about people like Franklin Graham, Robert Jeffress, Jerry Falwell Jr., Mike Huckabee, and so forth, they are of enthusiastic uh, Trump supporters, uh, obsequious in many cases, rhapsodic about him, unwilling to challenge him, unwilling to to stand up to his ethical and moral transgressions, and unwilling to speak truth to power. And that really bothers me. I think that that, those people are doing uh, more to harm the Christian witness than the so-called new atheists ever have.
0: Notwithstanding the complete accuracy of everything you've said, why didn't you think it was worth it just to sort of stand your ground and say, look, let's treat evangelicalism as about the gospel uh, the way it traditionally was and not move away from the term by virtue of its contemporary politics. I mean, I, for myself, I remember when I identified uh, as a modern Orthodox Jew, I was always troubled by the concrete politics of many of the people who, who shared that position. But I thought to myself, at least at the time, I'm so committed to this way of life. I'm so committed to the these religious Traditions and values that I don't want to let them monopolize the term. Um, now, to be fair, I also myself moved away from that terminology, so I know I know where you're coming from. But I'm wondering why not stand up for for the evangelicalism?
1: Yeah, it's a very good question. It's very well phrased, and I, I must say that I have several friends of mine who have exactly that uh, that point of view. I guess I I've, I'd say several things about it. One is if you find yourself saying. I'm a Republican, but, or I'm an evangelical, but, and most of your, uh, your statement is the qualification of the term or the allegiance, then that's worth thinking about.
0: That's a very good insight, by the the way, in almost any area of life.
1: Yeah. The second thing is I'm not, I'm not wed to to this, uh, I guess, personal divorce with the term evangelical. If things change, I'm more than happy to come back. Uh, Mm. so Mm. it's, it's not as if, this is something which is necessarily um, permanent by any means. Because as you say,
0: it's not that your Christian witness has changed in any respect.
1: No, it's not. And it, it's the same thing for the Republican Party. If the Republican Party comes back to what I think is its its best self and its truest roots, you know, then I would, um, of course, uh, be associated with, with it as as well. The other thing is, I just should say that, because I didn't grow up in a Christian church, I never identified all that much with denominations um mm. and I'm a person who has had questions and kind of zigs and zags in his faith um it's It's uh, not always been a, a an easy path for me in the sense that that's just my 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 outlook and temperament on life i'm I'm often mm-hmm uh, examining things and rethinking and, and, and so forth.
0: That's a good description for an intellectual. It's a more difficult description for, for a faith journey.
1: Yeah, you know, it is. And I've, I'm, I'm certainly within the four corners of the faith without, without a question. In some ways I'd say my faith is deeper now than it was even 10 or 15 years ago. I think I've just been less attached to evangelical Christianity than maybe some, some other people, mm-hmm. um, have, but, there's no question that the reason that I moved away from it was this Trump moment. And, and because of what I think is the discrediting of evangelical Christianity by a lot of white evangelicals, again, with a qualifier and caveat that a lot of my friends are, are evangelical, white evangelical Christians, and some of them have, have real concerns about Donald Trump.
0: Let's talk about uh, the Republican part because your, your path was not very wavering with respect to Republicanism. You worked for Reagan, you worked for uh, George W. Bush. Um, you've been a leading Republican thinker, talk about how you could move away from that terminology.
1: Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, the Republican party was, was the party that I've been a member of since I first cast my first vote for president, which was, which was Ronald Reagan and was a proud uh, Republican. I never thought it was a perfect party by any means.
0: There's no such thing as a perfect party. Otherwise it wouldn't be a party.
1: No, there's not. There's not. And, and, you know, I would, even in my writings when I was, for example, blogging for commentary Magazine. Uh, it wasn't unusual for me to take on Republicans. So it wasn't a party that I was, you know, I, I didn't feel like I was a, a blind follower, but I certainly was comfortable there. And as you said, I worked in three three Republican administrations. I'd say several things have happened to the Republican Party, uh, which has troubled me. Uh, one is a dramatic devaluation of ideas. Um, you know, Daniel Patrick Moynihan in the New York Times in 1980, 1981 wrote an uh, op-ed in which he said that the Republican Party uh, in an instant had become the party of ideas. And that mm-hmm. was, for somebody like me, who was really a child of the Reagan revolution, that was really important. Um, it, there was an intellectual vigor and excitement uh, in that uh, in that era. If you go back and think what were some of the key and central um, books of the 1980s, Losing Ground uh, by Charles Murray on welfare reform, uh, The Closing of the American Mind by Alan Bloom, was a warning against uh, relativism or relativism and postmodernism, the naked public square by Richard John Newhouse. Um, and and there was the Federal Society and Antonin Scalia, uh, and so that was the kind of intellectual milieu that that existed when I came to be part of the Republican Party and the conservative movement. And I think there's been a dramatic devaluation of ideas, which has culminated in this in
0: this Trumpian moment. Can I can I actually ask you a question just about about that devaluation? Because I've heard other people make a similar Argument, And I, I'm not sure I understand the contours of it in the following way. There's no question that Trump is not a conservative who comes out of that particular set of intellectual traditions that you describe. Um, And it's also the case that very, very few, if, if any of the people whom he's appointed to important or influential positions come out of those intellectual traditions. But that doesn't mean that the ideas have disappeared. Those same ideas are still out there. And in one sphere, um, the sphere, you mentioned the Federalist Society, the sphere of, of conservative constitutional and legal thought, actually Trump has consistently appointed people who are full of ideas that are ideas very much out of that intellectual tradition, which are creative and challenging. And they might be right or they might be wrong, but they're certainly interesting. I mean, I think of Justice Neil Gorsuch, for example, who's himself, you know, he's an intellectual. I mean, what else, how else would you describe someone who, in the middle of his legal career, goes back to Oxford to finish his PhD? And, you know, on the Supreme Court, he's pushing a very particular, it's not Scalia's version, but it's a particular conservative Federalist Society version of critique of the administrative state and of its overreach. I mean, it's very, it's an exciting, fermenting time, even if you disagree deeply with what, what the ideas are that he's, that, that he's offering. So in, the ideas are still out there. It's just that this current president isn't super interested in them.
1: Yeah. Uh, I, I'd l- let me t- untangle that a little bit um, and, and maybe give my own my own uh, uh, spin on, on what Please. you said. I, I, I don't doubt and, and would never argue that there aren't people who are intellectuals within the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. I mean, it's, it's not as if all ideas have been shattered. They don't exist or there aren't people that, that care for them. What I mean about the devaluation of ideas is um, that if you took a step back and said uh, not just Trump and not just the people who Trump has hired, but the people who nominated Trump and what defines the Republican Party today, I would say that if you listen to uh, conservative talk radio uh, or the or Fox News, there aren't serious arguments for the most part on policy it's the politics of theatrics that is that has happened the way i've I've described it to people is. I got the feeling that some somewhere along the way a lot of the let's say the conservative media complex of which I I know these people I've been you know friends with them these sure. these are people I've known for many decades but somewhere along the way I think that they just got tired of some of the arguments that were being made for example you know the, the issue of cutting taxes right and that's been a perennial debate here between liberals and conservatives liberals saying that it's tax cuts for the rich it's oriented uh, just to help the wealthy to get wealthier that it exacerbates the deficit and it's harmful to the economy and the traditional conservative response was no uh these tax cuts are are uh done to try and generate economic growth which helps everybody so overall they're better for the economy um I think that conservatives just got tired of doing that. And what happened is Donald Trump came in and there was a pretty impressive field in 2016 um, that you could have chosen, depending on what your flavor of ice cream was. I mean, if you're more libertarian, there was Rand Paul. If you were a certain kind of Christian conservative, there was Mike Huckabee or or Rick Santorum. If you were a kind of, let's say, reform conservative, there was Jeb Bush or Marco Rubio or John Kasich, or there was Chris Christie. I mean, the one person that you would not have chosen out of that field if you were a traditional Republican would have been Donald Trump and yet he won and he won actually quite easily so the question is what would have caused people who for years and years were the kind of purity patrol that said if there was one deviation from ideology whether it was uh, Jeb Bush or Mitch Daniels they were attacked on conservative talk radios no longer being conservative and many of these people rallied behind Donald Trump uh, who's, who's, you know, done things a thousand times worse than Mitch Daniels or, or, or Jeb Bush. And the answer was in my estimation, a large part of the answer was that they were excited by his style. They didn't care about ideas. It was the theatrics. It was entertaining to them. And the other thing that I think is part of this too, is Trump tapped into these seething resentments and grievances, on the American right, some of which were understandable. Um, certainly, if you were an evangelical Christian, you felt like you had been mocked and ridiculed by the elite culture. There was some basis for that, but there was the seething these seething resentments that that grew, and and Trump tapped into it.
0: I mean, that's you're clearly right about that, Pete. But I, I, can I offer a third hypothesis Please. that's it supplements the other two? It's not meant to replace it, um, and it's one that you know cuts maybe a little close to the bone. But it's that. Arguably, the George W. Bush administration had the effect within the Republican Party of discrediting the sort of project of ideas driven conservatism in the foreign policy side because of the Iraq War. Um, and, you know, as you know, because uh, somewhere in the complexity of the chain of government where you were close to the very top and I was close to the very bottom, uh, I was working for the Office of Reconstruction, Humanitarian Assistance, and then the Coalition Provisional Authority in Iraq. So I, I was there too. And I think in some important ways, when it came to foreign policy, the wing of the conservative thought world that came to be called neoconservative lost credit. And one thing Trump was very clear on was his repudiation of what he, uh, what would be characterized as neoconservative ideas, ideas about spreading freedom in the world. And I think some of the blame there falls with the Bush administration's failures in Iraq, of which I you know, consider myself to be a, a part a small part, only because I was a, a small figure. And then on the domestic side, there was the fact that the Bush administration, partly because of the wars, left the United States with a larger deficit than it had received. And that helped drive the birth of the Tea Party. And, you know, there too, um, the small government side of the ideas seemed not to have cashed itself out in a, in a concrete way. And I think arguably, it's just a hypothesis, That opened the door for Trump to walk in and say, you don't need the ideas, conservatives. Those are the people who gave you the Bush administration, and I'm going to give you something really different.
1: Yeah, look, I I think it's it's completely valid to say that um, by the end of his presidency, the the Bush presidency, it was it was obviously low and there was a reaction against it. And it may well have opened the door. I think that a lot of things probably opened the door to Donald Trump, Um, but. If you would have thought that the Bush administration, for the sake of the argument, if if you felt like it was discredited by a certain set of ideas, then you would come up presumably and hopefully with another set of coherent political ideas. That's not really what happened Uh, with Donald Trump. You got a person who has no interest, no acquaintance with, with ideas at all. And uh, I wouldn't lay that at the foot of of George W. Bush or anybody else. And I will say, even when when George W. Bush was riding fairly high in the Republican Party, uh, certainly in his first term, we had these conversations with with him, I recall these actually, uh, where he was warning about the rise of the the isms, uh, nativism, Mm -hmm. uh, protectionism, and isolationism. And so those movements were already coming, not because I mean, they predated the sense uh, among Republicans that the Iraq war had been completely lost and all of the rest. I will say just as a a footnote here on the Iraq wars, it's more than a footnote, but in the context of the conversation. But I think it's important for the sake of, of history and the reality of things, which is what George W. Bush did in the Iraq war with the surge in 2007 was one of the most impressive and bravest political decisions that i'd ever seen and it actually turned the war around when he when he named dave petraeus and and uh, ryan crocker to essentially lead that effort and by the time his presidency came to an end iraq was was hardly switzerland or, or Sweden in terms of how uh, pacified the country was but it was in considerably better shape than it was in 2005 2006 and the war had been turned around and in my mind when barack obama pulled out all of the troops in 2011, that triggered the the downward spiral that we're we're still seeing. Now, having said that, there's no question that the war was deeply unpopular and it hurt the larger project of democratization
0: in in the Middle East. I think what you say makes me think that we, you know, we should have a serious conversation. I mean, the world needs a serious conversation about the surge in, in retrospect. I was a strong supporter of the surge at the time, and I think it did accomplish some of the things you described, but I think The history of it is, in fact, is pretty complex and, you know, deserves its own thorough conversation. I wanted to say one more thing in defense of George W. Bush. Um, You know, you you tell this fascinating story about his pointing to the rise of, of nativism and protectionism and isolationism. Arguably, one of the things that saved the United States from entering into a period of public Islamophobia in the immediate aftermath of September 11th was George W. Bush. I mean, if you look at how Islamophobia rose during the Obama years, and obviously culminated in, in Donald Trump's run for the presidency, I think you know historians will want to know: well, why didn't this happen sooner? I mean, it was so long after nine eleven had happened, and I think a major part of the answer is that the President of the United States, George W. Bush, actively and thoughtfully carved out a position that said we are not at war with Islam, and he refused to use any Islamophobic rhetoric and he allied the United States with, with Muslims. And I think that actually had a suppressing effect on what otherwise would have been somewhat natural Islamophobic sentiments that would have followed from 9 And when he withdrew from the political scene after 2008, there was just nobody there with the capacity to rein them in. I'm not saying that Barack Obama, of course, was Islamophobic, just that he didn't have the same kind of credibility on the issue with those people who would want to incline in that direction. And I think this is something that uh, that W has not received sufficient credit for uh, in retrospect, and I think it's something that's worth worth noting.
1: Yeah, well, I, I agree with you on um, on that, and I would just say it's on on this you know larger point about the Republican Party and, and the American right and uh, what's happened in terms of its its intellectual um, you know movements. I would say now to the degree that Donald Trump has. Any set of policies, Uh, and it's it's difficult sometimes to tell what what they are, what 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 kind of ideology that he has. It is fascinating to me how much he's transformed the Republican Party. I mean, I'll I'll give you one example that's that's relatively recent, but underscores I think all sorts of pathologies that have happened, Uh, and that has to do with the issue of debt, deficit, limited government. Now, people on the American right. you're exactly correct when you talked about the Tea Party, right? That that came out because there was a sense of tremendous frustration um, with uh, Mitch McConnell and John Boehner. So if you listen to, to conservative talk radio around 2009, 2010, 2011, you're almost as likely to hear criticisms of Boehner and McConnell as you were of Obama. Um, so you, you, you got a sense back then, pre-Trump, of this rising populism and anger. Like Rush Limbaugh, for example shifted from years and years it was a binary conflict between liberalism and conservatism and more and more it went to establishment and anti-establishment and if you look at where rush limbaugh is now uh, versus where he was during the reagan years you see these profound changes this the other day uh, rush limbaugh got a call from a listener who was concerned about the debt and the deficit and rush uh, essentially laughed it off said it doesn't matter hasn't been a problem hasn't come back to bite us. Now, if you listen to Rush Limbaugh for virtually his entire career, particularly when when deficits were going up under Democratic presidents, he, he whacked them upside the head again and again mm-hmm. and again. And yeah. yet, because of Donald Trump, and Donald Trump has no interest in limited government, the deficit has, has increased by around 50%, I think, over his, the last three years. You see this, this illustration, which is the Republican Party, which for years made this an issue if at least theoretically if not in their execution and through policy said that debt and deficit mattered and limited government and liberty mattered now you got a guy like donald trump who doesn't care about those issues at all and they've shifted with him. Yeah. you see the same thing on protectionism mm-hmm. versus free trade the republican party as long as i've been alive has been the party of, of free trade now if you did a poll re- democrats are more likely to be free traders than republicans
0: oh, it's a fascinating flip so we've talked a lot about what's gone wrong, but you're also looking forward and thinking about what to do next. And your new book is actually directly forward looking. It's called The Death of Politics, How to Heal Our Frayed Republic After Trump. So first of all, you're assuming there is an after Trump in our in our future. And sure. I, I don't know whether that's actually true. But talk a little bit, if you would, about your vision of how we do go about healing a republic that is very badly frayed by virtue of the, the temper and tone of public discourse, and very much by the the revolution that Trump has wrought, not only in the Republican Party, but in the way we talk about politics.
1: Yeah, you know, in the short term, I'm I'm not optimistic about where we're going to go. I think that the 2020 campaign is going to be the the most vicious and brutal uh, in our lifetime, and one of one of the worst in in, in American history. And maybe it'll it'll uh, compete with Poo the uh, election of 1800 between Jefferson and Adams, which was a pretty nasty nasty affair, almost for the young republic apart. So look, as long as Donald Trump is president and as long as he's operating this way, and he's always going to operate this way, as long as he's president, it's just going to be very difficult to try and get uh, American public discourse and American politics back to a better place and for decency and a sense of humanity to uh, prevail. But in the medium to longer term, um, I'm, I'm not necessarily optimistic, but I'm, I'm hopeful for, for several reasons. One is I'm a congenital optimist, I suppose, when it comes to America and its capacity for self-renewal. I just think the American story is really one of the amazing stories in human history. And we've had a lot of difficult times, but it's been more or less a, a steady progress toward justice and more or less, uh, toward decency and expanding the, uh, rights and liberties of, uh, of people. So that gives me, gives with, me hope.
0: With some recent setbacks, yeah. Wow.
1: Yeah, but, but of course that's, that's the, that's, that's the story of individual lives, and I guess the lives of nations, which is the, it's never a straight line trajectory. And, but I think the trajectory of America has, has generally been good. Second is, is just, I try and bear in mind historical context which is we've had a lot worse periods in our history than this. Um, I can name a couple, which are pretty obvious. I mean, one I did, which was the election of 1800 between Adams and and Jefferson, which was a vicious affair, and politics was difficult at that moment. The Civil War was obviously the worst time in American history. 700,000 people dead in the country of roughly 29 million. So that would be the equivalent of 7 million dead today. Um, And the late 60s and 70s. I mean, I think some people may... forget I was a little young to have a a lot of memory about, about the late sixties. But, um, you know, if you go through, you, I'm, take off some of the things to remind listeners, but you had the assassination of Bobby Kennedy and Martin Luther King Jr. within several months. You had the riots in the streets, the race riots. You had the universities being taken over. You had the March on the Pentagon. You had the Vietnam War. You had Kent State in the early 70s when the National Guard shot some students at Kent State. In the research for the book, um, I I discovered that in an 18-month period in between 71 and 72, there was an average of five domestic bombings a day in the United States. So there was a feeling for a lot of people in the late 60s, early 70s that the country was kind of coming apart. There was certainly much more violence in the streets than we're seeing now. So that I, th- I think is another thing to keep in mind, which is we've had harder times and we've overcome them. And the third thing, which I, I put some hope in, um, is that sometimes I believe viruses create their own antibodies. And sometimes in the life of an individual and in the life of a country, if there are certain virtues um, that you forgot, you cease to pay attention to, you cease to cultivate, and they're stripped away from you. You're reminded why they mattered to begin with, and then you begin to to uh, defend them and and fight for them. And my sense, my instinct, some of it's anecdotal, some of it's the survey data. I think that there is a a big counter reaction to what Donald Trump stands for for his style, for the dehumanization, for the cruelty, for the crudity. And we'll see. We're going to find out in 2020 whether he's going to be repudiated or not. But I find the country exhausted and embarrassed and to some extent ashamed of what uh, Donald Trump has come to represent and the intensity of his politics.
0: Peter, you know, I, I share that insight that I think people are embarrassed. And I also think you use this keyword exhausted. People do seem to be exhausted. And so that makes me wonder, where is the energy going to come from for a counter response. What, what I sense is a sort of fatigue and frustration without anybody really saying, okay, here's the reason and here's the source of the energy that will drive us to do something different. And that, I'm wondering, do you sense that? Do you sense a source of or a place of energy? I mean, the one really energetic place in American politics other than Trump land today seems to be the Democratic Socialist left, which is highly energized. You know, it may be leading the Democratic Party into political disaster, but from the perspective of those who belong to the Democratic Socialist Wing, this is their chance to take their youth, their energy, and their enthusiasm and to mainstream a bunch of their ideas and to get the party to, to listen. I mean, they're they're not wasting an, the, the crisis of Donald Trump. They're using it as an opportunity. But the, also, I don't think that that's the place from which we're going to get a kind of nationally unifying anti-Trump moment. Um, right. So I'm, I'm wondering... Do you have a, you know, is there someplace else in this great land of ours where you see energy that could coalesce into a a more energetic and powerful rather than an exhausted and enervated return to, you know, return to civility and, and, and politics?
1: Yeah, it's, it's a great question. I, I do see it. I mean, I'll name one thing specifically, one movement that I'm familiar with, and I think it speaks to a, a broader movement. It's actually not a political movement, and I'm not sure that this needs to be or even should be driven primarily through politics. Maybe it's, it's a cultural response, which a- ends up manifesting itself in a political response. Um, but David Brooks, who's a close friend of mine, runs a project at the Aspen Institute called the Weave Project, And essentially what he's doing is he's he's getting together and using the power of the Aspen Institute as a convening forum for groups all across the country who are essentially reweaving the social fabric, which is, I think, frayed in many places and not just for political reasons, not just because of Donald Trump. But there's a sense, I think the research data backs this up, that the country is alienated, uh, lonely and isolated in ways that it hasn't been before. There's a lot of fear uh, that, that I think characterizes uh, life in America today. And and you do see all across America groups that are rising up, all sorts of groups doing all sorts of wonderful work to heal the country. It's a very American thing. It's a very Tocquevillian thing. And that's uh, to me is a source of, of, of hope. But I think as long as Donald Trump is president, we're not going to to begin the healing process in the way that it has to, he has to be removed from the equation. Um, And I I think that'll happen in 2020, but I don't know. I think it's just much too early. And obviously the Democratic Party can uh, foul things up. And Trump himself, for all of his problems and for all of his ignorance and and policy, has a certain malicious genius when it comes to his ability to uh, tap into and energize his base. Uh, I've never seen anything quite like it. I think that Trump's hold on the base of his party is at least as strong as Ronald Reagan's was. There's an almost cult of personality that has happened with Donald Trump, which is an extraordinary thing to witness. It's not unsurprising when when I wrote during the 2016 campaign, my criticism of Donald Trump, one of the things that was was high on my list of concerns wasn't my chief concern, but it was one of my concerns is uh, that he would, uh, he would utterly transform the Republican party and that people would like a black hole, the gravitational pull of Trump as president would pull an awful lot of people in. And I think that that's, um, that's happened. And I I must say just anecdotally, because I've been in touch, as you can imagine with a lot of Republicans, a lot of evangelicals who are supportive of Trump. That's the world that I came from, obviously the Republican and and Christian world. And I, I found a couple of years ago more qualified support, support for Donald Trump, but qualified. Um, mm-hmm. That is largely disappeared. And now it's actually changed. There's a real enthusiasm for him. It's the sense that he's mm-hmm. going to bring a pistol to a cultural knife fight. And mm-hmm. that thrills them.
0: Pete, I want to thank you very much for sharing your vision of uh, reweaving social fabric sometime post-Trump. And uh, I want to thank you Really, for the body of your your serious conservative intellectual thought, and uh, let's hope that the return to the Republican Party as a party of ideas happens eventually, and that you're uh, you're a central part of it. Thanks for joining me.
1: It was great to be on. I'm a great admirer of your work, and it was uh, it was fun to have the conversation with you.
0: Listening to Pete Weiner, you can't help but walk away with the feeling. That the decimation of the ideas wing of the Republican Party has been complete. Here's someone who was at the absolute epicenter of the world of conservative and Republican ideas, a committed evangelical Christian, a senior figure in the George W. Bush administration, and he can no longer bring himself to call himself a Republican. And perhaps even more shockingly, the political associations of evangelicalism have become so strong that he's not even going to use the term evangelical to describe his own religious faith. That's a devastating picture, and it raises the question of what is going to happen going forward. Will the Republican Party eventually seek to reinvent itself? For the moment, the answer is pretty clearly that that reinvention has happened, and that reinvention has been a reinvention into Trumpism. Trumpism, though, still awaits its own intellectual expression. There's a president. He has ideas of a certain structure, but what he does not have is the armature of thoughtful people to try to express those ideas in a coherent and consistent fashion. It's not clear where that's coming from, and it's not clear where that will happen at all. But if history is any judge, if Donald Trump is reelected, there will be an opportunity for Trump intellectuals to emerge, and some will eventually emerge to state their case. When that happens, it'll be all the more important for intellectuals from other perspectives, whether conservative, liberal, or left of liberal, to offer responses and to engage in a conversation. And that conversation, if we're lucky enough for it to emerge, is actually going to be the beginning of the process of restoring some kind of political discourse in our country. Deep Background is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our producer is Lydia Jean Cott with engineering by Jason Gambrell and Jason Rostkowski. Our showrunner is Sophie McKibben. Our theme music is composed by Luis Guerra. Special thanks to the Pushkin Brass, Malcolm Gladwell, Jacob Weisberg, and Mia Lobel. I'm Noah Feldman. You can follow me on Twitter at NoahRFeldman. This is Deep Background. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentions, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job and we have to find out who did they kill?
1: It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth?
0: I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling, because I was like, this is this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep
1: Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcasts show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus.